All right, we are, uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew and in chapter 5, and um, I'll go ahead and let you know, if you happen to be uh, enough of a kind of church nerd uh, to be keeping up with the lectionary, I'm going to tell you we're a week behind. So uh, last week we separated off and kind of did the thing where we met in small groups and told our stories and all those kind of things last week. And, uh, and so if I would have missed this week, though, we would have missed the beginning of a set of teachings of Jesus, the Beatitudes that I just, I wasn't willing to skip over. So um, I am sorry if you're a rule follower and you feel like we're supposed to be a little farther along in Matthew, uh, we will catch up, I promise. Um, but we are in the first 12 verses of Matthew tonight, and there are verses um, that you have heard before. There's uh, other versions of it in the other Gospels as well. They're slightly different here in Matthew. Um, but I'm excited to talk to you about these tonight because I think these are um, misunderstood a lot, and I, and I just I think they're incredibly important. So uh, join me, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and I neglected to write down what number that is in the Pew Bible, I'm sorry. Um, but it says this, it is on the screen, so uh, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. It's a bad combination when something is both deeply important and almost universally misunderstood. I feel this way about my own body. Really, there shouldn't be much that's more important in my life right now than understanding my body, but I will tell you, not just because I didn't pay attention in high school biology and stuff, but just in general, I am overwhelmingly ignorant about it. And it doesn't give me any hope that I feel like every two days I hear something new that conflicts with something else I heard. This is good for you, now it's bad for you. You shouldn't have much of this. Stay away from fat. Now you should put a lump of butter in your coffee every morning to keep you from being hungry. Now you should do this, now you should do that. Constantly changing, right? My dad likes to make the joke that he read an article once that said a glass of red wine a day is good for your heart. And he likes to say he cut that out and never read the paper again. Very important, but I'm largely ignorant of it. I also felt the same way about the pandemic, and particularly in the beginning of the pandemic, I think that's what caused so much anxiety for us, right? We knew so little about what was the most important thing at the moment, about the thing we were afraid might try to kill us, right? It made for anxious times for all of us. We weren't sure what to do. We had to fight our impulses, even the good ones, right? Don't go outside. Don't hug your friend. Spray your groceries just in case. Assume your annual allergies are probably just the beginning of the end. I don't know if you struggle with allergies, but the pandemic was a bad time to be someone who has allergies. I don't know about you, but it was a bit disorienting to try so hard to not break rules that I didn't quite understand or get. 
I was confused, right? I understand why there were some people, as much as I may have disagreed with them, who just ignored all the advice. I understand the people who were trying so hard, they believed everything they heard, no matter how little sense it might have made, and tried to follow every letter of every law, right? We were confused. We were all confused. And that was the most important thing at the time. It's hard to have something very important and easily confusing at the same time. And I believe that struggle happens for those of us who try to understand and follow the teachings of Jesus when we engage in this, the first thing he teaches in the Gospel of Matthew. The Beatitudes are extremely important and difficult to make sense of. Um, Last week I sat in a small group of people from all different places uh, in in kind of different uh, areas of life. And the small group, we talked about these verses, and uh, it was great. I loved the conversation, but it was all over the place. I mean, we were all over the place. It was a great conversation, but we were struggling to wrap our minds around what this was actually trying to tell us. We read like 10 different translations trying to find the key, and none of them quite unlocked it for us. We asked more questions than we answered. We would try to just get big picture and talk about everything from 10,000 foot view, and then we'd latch on to one single word and try to parse it out and look up what it meant in the Greek and try to figure out and pin it down and see what it really meant. We were all over the place. It was confusing. I don't know that we left with a better idea necessarily, although I loved the time talking about it. The Beatitudes, perhaps by design, throw you off kilter. Why is that? I mean, on its surface, these teachings are less opaque than a lot of Jesus' parables and teachings. The words are fairly straightforward. They're not like symbolic or poetic language. There's no beasts rising out of the sea or anything like that. But I would argue that even though that is true, we still read it very incorrectly a lot, and it causes a lot of problems and confusion. These Beatitudes are deeply important and generally misunderstood. So I want to talk a little bit about them tonight. I want to start by talking about what they are not. I think this is incredibly important because it's honestly, uh, it's, I've only recently come to understand this, I think, about them. First thing I want us to understand about Beatitudes is they are not life hacks. As much as I love those articles, as much as I love a shortcut to getting what I want out of life, these are not life hacks. They are not descriptions of what you need to do in order to directly access the blessings that you want. Now, I understand that this is how they read when you isolate them from the rest of the text and talk just about them. In isolation, it reads like a formula. These are the rules. This is the contract with God. Here's the list of things. You be this, and then you'll get this. You perform these tasks, and you get the commensurate rewards for a job well done. And that's when we sit up and we take notice because, hey, I want to be blessed. I want to do this so I can get that. Therefore, I'll be all these things that I need to be in order to get the promised blessings that result from it, right? I'm going to ask that we do everything we can to rid ourselves of that way of reading the Beatitudes. It's easy to look at them that way. That's not the intent, I don't believe, in any way. It's not a to-do list. never was meant to be a to-do list. And I want to tell you a couple reasons why I don't think it is. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you and confess that I'm going to largely steal most of this next part of my sermon from a guy named Dallas Willard. Um, I'm an enormous fan of his, particularly a book called The Divine Conspiracy. If you've never read it, I couldn't recommend it more highly. 
And he dedicates an entire chapter to this discussion, and uh, I'm going to happily rip off a couple of his points here. But Willard lists several reasons, and I won't get into all of them, why we should know not to treat the Beatitudes as some list of things to do or to be attained. And first he points out that many of the things on this list are obviously not things you want. They're just bad things. Spiritual poverty, being poor in spirit. I don't know how it was in your church growing up. We always uh, made that into something that it doesn't actually say. We would always say things like, spiritual poverty is just kind of code for humility or something along those lines. Um, But that's not actually what it says. He argues that spiritual poverty is not code for humility. It means having nothing to give spiritually. It means when you are at that place where you feel bankrupt spiritually, empty, zeroed out, not an enviable place to be. And when it talks about mourning, it's not about some holy spiritual state of empathy where we feel other people's pain as much as that's as great as that is, and we should pursue that. No, it's just mourning. It's just grieving. And you've been there just like I've been, and it's terrible. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Persecution, hunger, poverty, these are not things to be desired, right? Some of them can literally kill you. If this were a to-do list, we should be wanting all of these things. And all of us clearly know we don't. I don't want to mourn anymore. I don't want to be spiritually impoverished any more than I sometimes am. I don't want to be persecuted any more than I sometimes am. I understand those to be bad things that I don't want. Not to mention the fact that it would also mean that if, if, we, if we read it that way, it also means that these are things God wants for us. And honestly, this would make God more than a little cruel. Why would God want any of God's beloved to feel impoverished spiritually, to mourn and to grieve and to be persecuted? I don't want that for the ones I love. Am I nicer than God? Dear Lord, let's hope not. What would it say about God if this were the case, right? We should be very careful about taking the Beatitudes and magically turning that which is objectively bad and making it a virtue. And then finally, the, thing he, the other argument he makes about why we shouldn't read them that way is that if this is a formula, if this is some kind of contractual list, I do this and I get that from God, why do we even need Jesus? What role would Jesus even play in that kind of reward system, right? Why would we need mercy or grace or unconditional love at all? All we need to do is check off the things on this list. All we need is the, the contract and the rewards we get for attaining the right things. All I need is to get myself spiritually impoverished, experience a lot of loss, start mourning, etc., and then I get everything I want. All we need is to work the list, to obey the new set of laws. Then I get blessed. And Willard argues, and I agree with him, that this would make Christ irrelevant to the entire situation. He's not necessary if that's the case. In fact, he says that this type of arrangement is usually preferred to us. We like to read our religion this way so that we might avoid what he calls, and I love this phrase, we might avoid the embarrassment of pure mercy. The embarrassment of pure mercy. It makes us feel better to get rewarded for a good performance. That feels much better than it does to admit that we have been lavished upon in whatever sorry state we find ourselves in. I mean, what do I really have as a person? if that which is most valuable to me is simply a gift 
and is in no way earned. It's a disconcerting idea if you think about it. Grace sounds good in a song. It sounds good in a sermon. But grace has sharp elbows. It has implications. There's a reason why we resist it. Ultimately, Willard uh, says this, and I think I actually remember to put a quote on the slide. In regards to the Beatitudes, he says, no one is actually being told that they are better off for being poor or mourning, for being persecuted, and so on, or that the conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God or man. Nor are the Beatitudes indications of who will be on top, quote, after the revolution, unquote. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, the rule of God from heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. The Beatitudes simply cannot be good news if they are understood to be a set of how-tos for achieving blessedness. They would only then amount to new legalism. They would, they would not serve to throw open the kingdom, anything but. They would impose a new brand of Phariseeism, a new way of closing the door, as well as some very gratifying new possibilities for the human engineering of righteousness. That's a mouthful, and I quote him because that's a lot better than anything I could say. The Beatitudes as a to-do list would just be a different law that functioned the same way the law always has. It just changes the contents. It would be a suppression of grace, not its announcement. We don't read these Beatitudes as a roadmap to attaining something that God is indebted to give us if we do the right things. Rather, they are a description of a kingdom of heaven that will be made up of the most surprising of people and graces. Remember, Jesus is starting a new movement. This is the first thing he teaches to the first crowd that starts to follow him. Jesus is starting a new movement of love, and these words that he speaks first, after healing all those that no one else wants to touch or mess with, after caring for the ones that the Beatitude has just named as blessed, Jesus is now starting this new thing. He starts by demonstrating that this kingdom simply will not value what everyone else values. It is backwards. It is upside down. It is something altogether different. This new work that he is initiating is not the same old story with a different name. It is a different world altogether. I imagine the disciples have been sitting there and watching Jesus heal these crowds, all those in need, all those who are suffering, all those who have nothing to offer but themselves, and they're watching Jesus gather this crowd and thinking to themselves, exactly what kind of army is this guy raising? Because no one else does this. Nowhere else embraces these kinds of value or these kinds of people. No one wants the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt or deficient, those who have nothing left to give. We avoid those people, right? No one wants to center their community on those who are grieving and mourning. Why would I want to deal with that kind of sadness and struggle when I don't have to right now? No one uplifts the meek. They don't get things done. They are weak. They're the losers in this world, right? They end up empty-handed and walked upon. Why would I align myself with them? Who wants the hungry and the thirsty for whatever it is? And be cool. Don't act so needy all the time. No one wants to be around the person who has no answers and always needs something from someone else. And forget the merciful. They befriend those that you dislike. 
Never mind the goody two-shoes, the childlike pure in heart. I don't trust that anyways. I don't want the peacemakers. They never pay back the people who deserve it. They don't believe in real justice. And the persecuted, let's be honest, they ruin every party. None of these people are the ones upon which you would build something exciting and new mission that's going to take over the world. Forget these people. Who cares about them? And that is the point of the Beatitudes. God cares about them. God cares about those people. God centers those that everyone else sends out. The kingdom of heaven is going to be chock full of these kind of people. They will be no less recipients of God's love or grace or blessing than anyone else. Not because they figured out the new law and obeyed it perfectly in order to get a reward, but precisely because they haven't done the things we think it takes to win. They have simply received God's mercy and love without condition, which is all any of us can actually do. Jesus is describing what the population of this new community is going to look like. Now, last week, a lot of us got together, uh, and thank you for those of you who came, and shared our stories with each other. And it's vulnerable and it's uncomfortable. And uh, some of you didn't come last week because it hurt to even think about it. And some of you did it anyways, and some of you may regret that you did it. I don't know. But I couldn't love anything more than I loved those groups and those times that I have with people when I get to really hear their story. Not just because I'm voyeuristic and want to know the dirty details, but I love it when people are vulnerable enough to share their stories because it ruins the false church narrative most of us were brought up to believe. I don't know about you, but when I walk into a church, uh, maybe you walked in here for the first time tonight and you probably had a narrative in your head the same way I do. I walk into a church service carrying all my respective baggage and I just know that everyone else in the room has it spiritually together in a way that I cannot and will not. I know that no one else has failed as spectacularly as I have or is hurting in the way that I am, or is struggling with the things that I struggle with. I feel uniquely left out. And I feel that way because I know my story, and I don't know theirs. And that's what I love about those groups, because we hear from each other, and we know that for the lie that it is. The lie that you are somehow alone in this. So let me assure you of this, if you don't believe it already. Everyone in here is struggling. Everyone in here is hurting in one way or another. Everyone in here has dark moments in their lives, things they aren't proud of, things that they struggle with and suffer from. We are messy and sinful and addicted and angry and brokenhearted and confused and sick and sad and tired. We are tired. We are impatient. We are ugly to each other. And we fall short in too many ways to name. That's us. That's the real us. Now, we try hard to hide it from people at work, from our friends, from everyone we run into on a day-to-day basis, because who wants to deal with any of that? And to that, Jesus says, we do. Here, here is your place. Here is where we bless that kind of thing. Here is where you are valued and wanted. Here is where we are happier and better as a whole because of you and your story. Bring bring us your bankrupt, your sad, your weak, 
we have enough blessing for everybody here. In fact, blessed are all those who have missed the boat because we are fishers of men. That's what we're here to do is pull each other back in. We need to always keep that in the forefront of our mind. This is the first thing Jesus taught for a reason because this should always be what we are about if we are to call ourselves a church and followers of Christ. I had an interesting conversation with someone this week that I, I, know, I know pretty well, but I've never had these kind of conversations with him. He was kind of asking my advice a little bit as a minister. Uh, he had a friend uh, that they were trying, he and his wife were trying to help as they navigated uh, coming out of addiction. And so uh, he was asking kind of about it and how kind of hard it was, and he wasn't sure of the right answers, wasn't sure what to do. And then he said, and then uh, they invited me to come to an AA meeting, and I, I, don't even, I don't even know what to do with that. And I immediately, normally I'm a little more diplomatic than this, and I said, oh, you should definitely go. Like, stop, just go to that. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah. I said, if anyone, I try to say yes anytime someone asks. In fact, uh, I've, I've been, and it changes the way I think about God and church. In fact, I, I told him the highest compliment I've ever received um, is when uh, someone who was working the steps uh, was attending here and told me that our church sometimes reminded them of one of their meetings. I'd, I'll put that on the billboard if we could ever afford one. Because if and when we can, man, we can manage to be a place where everyone can honestly and authentically struggle and keep showing up for each other, then maybe, just maybe, we're actually reflecting the right kingdom. We should be a place that people feel blessed when they don't feel blessed anywhere else. That is the kingdom of God. If we ever look around and only see those that the world calls blessed, well, that's when we should pack it up and go home because we don't have a new story to tell. Because this is a different kingdom. Because in the kingdom of God, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those with broken hearts. Blessed are those who can't seem to take for themselves. Blessed are those who can't seem to get satiated. Blessed are those who don't get even. Blessed are those whose childlike hearts are still soft and unspoiled and easily wounded. Blessed are those who don't even the scales. And blessed are those who the world has deemed unlovable and made them suffer for it. Rejoice, be glad, because this is your place.